0: to the War Room. This is your host, Bill Evans. I'm here in Madera, California. Today, I'm on the phone with Mark Rushdooney from his office. Is that in Angel Camp or Vallecito? Or? In
1: Vallecito, just about
0: four miles from Angel's Camp, California. It, it's not really on the way to anywhere, is it, Mark? No, it's
1: a, a little isolated. It's the old Gold Rush country, and it's uh, mostly a tourist area, rural, very
0: rural. We've been doing this now for going on a year now because of... Uh, Martin, in your gracious offer to allow us to produce audio books of your, some of your father's uh, works, uh, why don't you tell uh, uh, our listeners who who may know of your father but don't know much about you, tell us a little bit about your, yourself, your family, uh, what what in your role, and tell us a little bit about Calcedon because, you know, we have a lot of new, young Christians who are making their way, who are finding their way into the Christian Reconstructionist school of thought, maybe by way of post or by way of theonomy. And, uh, and, and so they don't know the great legacy that's been laid for them and, uh, and, and, and perhaps they, they know a little bit about, they've read a little bit of your father's works, are, are, uh, but they may not be aware of the resources that Calcedon Foundation uh, makes available. So why don't you tell us, we'll just take the floor and introduce us to yourself and to your ministry uh, by way of Calcedon. Well,
1: I'm the um, uh, son of R.J. Rushdooney. I'm the youngest of six children, and um, uh, I joined the ministry uh, full-time in 1978 uh, I was about eleven years old in nineteen sixty five when my father began this ministry and it's something he had really wanted to do for a long time. He had begun his ministry out of a seminary as a missionary on a remote Indian reservation in uh, northern Nevada and after that he was a pastor for a number of years in a um, small town in um, California, and then he would serve on a private foundation. But for a long time, he had been hoping to start some sort of an educational center, a research center, uh, perhaps a seminary, uh, in order to train uh, individuals. And he had had this hope even when he was in the Presbyterian Church USA. He was. Pushed out of that denomination. He joined the Orthodox Presbyterian Church later. But um, he had read extensively from his childhood, and he knew that he wanted to write, and he knew he had a ministry of writing ahead of him, and Chalcedon enabled him to do that. He was able to do that beginning in 1965. He, his approach is not really unique However, considering the state of the modern church, it became unique because the church had been quiet on such things as God's law for so long. In fact, they pretty much repudiated God's law. He coined a term at the beginning of the Chalcedon years, uh, that Christian Reconstruction. Christian Reconstruction is less a movement than it is an analogy for Christian's responsibility to the world around him that basically when he the Christian is facing a culture that is anti-christian a culture that has is in collapse and is in various problems in one area of life after another the Christian has to address those problems in something of a prophetic voice and say this is why your culture is a mess. This is why your marriage is a mess. This is why our institutions and our, our laws and our schools are a mess. It's because we're violating God's law. It doesn't replace the gospel, but it tells people that you cannot cross God and expect to have a good life. And so we, we say that you know the, the, the message of God is a full-orbed one. It's a message of salvation, but it's also a message of how we live. And this is what Christian Christian Reconstruction is about. It's telling Christians that we have to, first of all, reevaluate how we live and how we think and how we obey God. And we can best help our families, our businesses, our communities by living life as God would have us. The church has to be that salt in life. It's, it's, It's basically the same in illustration as uh, being salt for the earth. It's, we help preserve. Salt was a preservative agent for much of history. You salted food down, and then you had that salted food that you soaked in the salt out, and you had something comparable to fresh meat and such. Well, it was a preserving agent. And, and the message of Christian Reconstruction is if we, we want to save our institutions, if, if we want to reverse this downward trend, then we have to give up this uh, humanistic and pagan nonsense that we've been moving towards. And we really have to self-consciously understand why we've gone wrong. It's not a substitute for salvation. It's based upon the gospel. But it's, it's it answers the question that Francis Schaeffer asked, um, then how shall we then live? Mm-hmm. Theonomy basically answers that. And Christian reconstruction is based upon theonomy. Theonomy is the mechanism of Christian reconstruction. So it's, it's a message that is still primarily being addressed to the church because the church hasn't re- responded too positively to it. But the church doesn't really ultimately have too many options of where it's going to go. Um, the church is, is in in many respects uh, a failure in the last hundred years. and that can be me- failure can be measured by its inability to affect the culture. It is weaker than it should be given its numbers. And the reason it's weak is because it's not obeying God. And if you read the account of all the prophets in the Old Testament, they speak about judgment beginning at the house of God. And sometimes the prophets would even address, well, God, why don't you judge the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Egyptians or you know those other people who are far worse than we? Why are you predicting judgment on your own people? And in the New Testament, we have the praise that judgment must begin at the house of the Lord. Uh, God's people have to mend their ways before the culture is changed. So it's really appropriate that this debate on Christian Reconstruction is happening in the church, because the church has to fix itself before it's going to fix the culture.
0: A couple of questions, Mark, if I may. So would you say it's, obviously, theonomy is oftentimes um, noted by a few uh, prominent straw men uh, passages, whether it be you know stoning the uh, wayward uh, recalcitrant sun or parapets around your roof, but would you would it be fair to say that that really theonomy is the assertion uh, that all of God's word speaks to all of life
1: yes, it's um, because God is God over all then he speaks to all areas of life, and we're responsible to him in all areas of life. And you don't get a pass just because you don't believe in God. That, that's basically giving a credibility to unbelief, a credibility to rebellion against God. In other words, what we sometimes call the secular world, um, we sometimes say, well, we can't give this message of, of, of God's law to the secular world. But that's in effect saying, well, just because you reject God, therefore you're not responsible to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, All men are always responsible to God. And when men violate God's law, bad things happen in their culture. Now, that's not to say that obeying God's law is going to save them. It won't. But if I jump off a cliff, God's laws of physics are going to apply, whether I'm a pagan or whether I'm a believer. And my punishment is already built into God's universe. It's by the laws of physics. I'm going to get hurt if I jump off that cliff. We basically have to tell our culture, you're jumping off a cliff, and you're going to get hurt. And you're going to suffer the consequences of it. And that's the essence of the theonomic message. And people will object to whatever they don't like about God's law, whatever... Um, some things like thou shalt not murder, people are okay with because um, they think that makes sense to them. But And they want to pick and choose what they like about God's law. And one of the most common objections is sexual sins, because modern man has basically defined freedom as sexual freedom. And whenever the, the argument usually comes around very quickly to sexual sins and we can't punish people for sexual sins. Well, it's I don't think even the early church tried to take um, uh, on the, the punishment of the pagans. Um, we build up a Christian culture and this is what it's going to look on. So if God's law, we're not talking about trying to impose God's law. We're, we're telling people this is something that you must embrace. But God's law and theonomy and Christian reconstruction are all based upon the necessity of conversion, which involves the necessity of the Holy Spirit moving. And we need a revival. We we need a regenerate people. But we need to tell them why they're having problems. And I I think that's the, the, the important role in theonomy. And unfortunately, the Church is arguing against what should be its message.
0: Mark, you've been talking about theonomy and specifically, and of course there are various different bullets, if you will, or tenets that make up the the ideology or the Christian response uh, known as Christian reconstruction, uh, presuppositional apologetics, uh, and optimistic eschatology, uh, postmillennialism. We we would say, um, covenantal theology, which I think probably most Christians, even people who call themselves covenantal, probably have the least amount of understanding regarding. And then, of course, uh, Calvinistic soteriology, and, and as you just mentioned, of course, before all of that, um, is uh, regeneration and the absolute authority of and inspiration of God's word. Those are sort of the underlying... You know, uh, foundations. Uh, but does it appear that there are different people? Different people make their way into this view or our way of thinking by way of different ones of those bullets. I mean, someone could say, well, if if you take uh, Reformed soteriology and the absolute sovereignty of God to its logical ultimate conclusion, then you have to come up with uh, an optimistic future. Uh, it, it has to go his way. Uh, if you, uh, if you're, if God is uh, is going to rule, well, how is he going to rule except by his law? That is how a king rules. And so, the people make their way into it through various different sort of gateways, and then it sort of blooms and blossoms out from there. Uh, I wonder how many people ever, you know, approach Christian. I know that there are various different books that that that, that lay it out as a system. But, um, it, it seems to me that it's almost an acquired, uh, it's, it, it's an acquisition. It's, it, it, people don't get it all at once necessarily. But in that vein, and you can speak to that, but the other, I want to ask you, because I know that you're a thinker, and, uh, because you're an observer, you're, 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 you're uh, uh, and how do you feel that, what, what is your view on how we can best uh, propagate this message? What is the way that uh, you know, as, as Christian Reconstructionists, make up a fairly numerically insignificant uh, number of, of, of members of the of the visible church? Let's say in the not in not just in America, but I'm sure you have your finger on what's going on around the world, and I'd like you to speak to that a little bit later too, as some of the uh, places where you see Christian reconstruction really on the move and, and the church really uh, uh, taking hold of it and, and embracing it uh, enthusiastically. Uh, while that may not be the case in America, it may be the case in other, you know places like Uganda or some other place or, or Brazil. But um, what do you think as believers is the way that we can most effectively propagate this ideology or this response, uh, known as Christian Reconstruction, to uh, the broadly evangelical community, or maybe our our local congregations, where we're uh, where the the, uh, the elders or the, the the teaching of the pastor may not be, they may actually be antagonistic to it. How is the best way that we can go about exposing and propagating this? You think in a positive way?
1: It's. It can be difficult because there is a suspicion when you whenever you talk about god's law um because it's been so programmed into the modern Christian that god's law is 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 contrary uh to God's grace, and that is probably the single biggest um hurdle that we need to face. And it's not an easy one, and it's not going to be one that's going to um, be handled uh, quickly or easily. Um, however, there, I, I think we've made tremendous progress. You know, it's easy when you have a, a, an idea, and you, like you say, you have all these various pillars and and, and tenants, and you see how it all works together. Whenever you have a consistent view, uh, or what you believe to be a consistent view, then you see why other views are inconsistent and why they're in, in going to be ineffective in the long run. And it's easy to say, "Well, we have this plan; everybody needs to get on board." That's not how people think. It's not how you know life works. Even, even the, you know, our Lord described the kingdom. Uh, like yeast working you don't always see you don't see yeast working and yet in fact it works and and, uh, it it does cause the bread to rise well we need to keep that analogy that the kingdom of God grows slowly in in many ways and and I think sometimes the change in theology happens very very slowly and it's not going to be a top-down and when you have the big the big idea what you believe is the big idea and you think you understand it, then you says, how can we get everybody on board? I don't think it'll happen that way. Um, It it happens incrementally, and we change people, and particularly those who who are suspicious of our perspective, we just, we have to talk to them in a way that's non-threatening, because I think the reform community has had a problem for a long time with people who are so convinced of their position that um, they're ready con- to condemn everyone else to hell. And in fact, the um, you know somebody told me once that he came out of the charismatic movement, very much on board with what we're saying. He says, "I don't want to get too close to the reform community because there are too many wannabe John Knoxes." I've always remembered that. Um, that thing. Because John Knox's ministry was very unique, and, yet, and, it, was, and it was very controversial and, and confrontational. That's not always particularly effective. And confrontation in, in the modern world, at least in the West, isn't a very effective means of, of communicating. So we sometimes act as a threat to those whom we should be presenting God's truth to in a very non-threatening way. Because it's easy to look at what sometimes people believe and say, oh, that's wrong, therefore we have to condemn it as the worst form of heresy. And people believe things for different reasons. Some people believe things because they think that's what the Bible says. For instance, um, some people believe in, in free will because they believe, that's they, and they've been taught that that's what the Bible says. So, so they think they're defending the Bible. Other people believe in free will because they hate the idea of a sovereign God. And that's two different positions entirely,
0: right, right.
1: and uh, the one is very offensive to us, and it should be. Uh, but the other is, you know, a genuine Christian idea that happens to be wrong, right. and and so we need to, to see this difference of people. The way I look at at the future is, we're on the winning side, and God never expects us to change the world. He's going to do that. And we know he's going to do that. And at least if you're a post-millennial, like I am. And so what God does demand of us is faithfulness. And so we proclaim the truth. We teach. We influence men. And some people are better at influencing than others. And, And we need promoters. We need leaders. We need people who can communicate the truth of God in in a new and and very positive way, but we do what we are able to, do, and we leave the ultimate results to God. But we know that we're on the winning side because if you're if you believe that um, um, uh, uh, antinomianism has no future in the kingdom of God, and that that God's kingdom and His law will prevail, then we don't have to try to, to fix everything because ultimately the entire advance of the kingdom of god that we're talking about in christian reconstruction and theonomy is really up to the holy spirit and it's really ultimately going to be in the timing of god there's a phrase in in that's repeated in the bible several times how long O lord and i think this is a feeling that all christians have always felt you know you know, when can things be resolved? We all, every generation of, of believers, wants to think, see things resolved for the glory of God in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. They want to see the change, and they want to see it happen now. And they think, what's wrong that it's not happening? What can we do differently? What we can do is be faithful and encourage others to be faithful, to to and, and to teach people. Be faithful. Right now, I would say, in, in the, if you look at the, the church as a whole, worldwide, the great problem is lack of faithfulness uh, to God's law. Word, we don't we don't know what um, obedience really looks like in the church, and that's going to have to be the first change. And I think we have made progress. So. We don't have the big thinkers in Christian Reconstruction now that we did a generation ago. But we have a much wider following. And that that is encouraging. And we have lots and lots of books. And that's a lot of what Calcedon does is to keep these books in print because I think my father's um, work is going to be far more important in the coming years than they have been to this point, Christian Reconstruction is an idea that has barely been broached. Theonomy, the modern Theonomy movement, is 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 very young, and so as far as its influence, it's more influential than it's ever been. But it's not a particularly prominent message uh, as far as it's if what we can see in public. We don't have the personalities in the. Uh, in the Reconstructionist or Theonomy movements that we did a generation ago. Um, But that's not really a a problem to the movement. Prominent personalities can be a detriment um, because people think that a movement um, begins and ends with the personality, and it doesn't.
0: The, The things you're saying, I was listening to you, they're so pregnant, there's so many different... Uh, rabbit trails, I would love to have time to go down uh, with you. I, I, as you were talking about uh, the Holy Spirit, I was reminded, and, and we've been talking about this a lot, both in some of our uh, setting the record straight messages, Derek Evans preached on, and get, delivered a message the other day on this, and uh, and, and I, I, I gave him the idea from talking to a good friend of your father's, who was John, John Weaver. Mm -hmm. And one of of the things that, uh, and I know that they preached in each other's pulpits, and John came out and spent a lot of time with your dad and loved him dearly. And uh, he likes to talk about God's sovereignty in illumination, the fact that uh, we tend to think that the answer to every problem is just read this book and you'll get it. Well, you don't get anything unless the Holy Spirit enables you to get it. Uh, you know, all all the knowledge that we have is knowledge that we've received. I mean, you didn't sprinkle, you know. So uh, the idea is that, and then for that reason, we need to be charitable and patient and uh, and kind with those who who, uh, who who don't, who aren't, who haven't come along as far, maybe don't share some of the same views. Uh, the other thing that you said earlier that I wanted to ask you about, because this is an insight into your dad and your family life. You know, we're talking about salt being a preservative. You know, Jesus references the flavor of salt. It salt loses its flavor, which suggests that you know salt is also something that makes otherwise bland food palatable and tasty. And so, so that, um, that that salt that Christ speaks of, you know, without the hope of the gospel, without the promises of God, uh, and before the incarnation, the world was a dark deadly brutish place and it was uh the hope of the gospel and uh the uh gifts and the outpouring and the fruit of the holy spirit i I presume that that brought a marked change in the character of living uh you know um and i wonder that being the case i think your father you know from some of the audio recordings we hear of him or maybe some brief videos we get the impression that he was a maybe a, a dour, very uh, uh, solemn, sober-minded. I'm sure he was a very sober-minded individual. But I, I wonder if you could speak to – this is just a personal side note. Uh, I wonder if you could speak to your dad's zest for life and what it was like. I'm sure your home was a, a revolving door of Christian personalities and thinkers, Um uh, what was it like? What was your dad like? What, 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 tell us a little bit about his enthusiasm and his energy and his zest for life. Well, when he was, it was a family joke that
1: my dad, it was hard to get a picture of my dad smiling. He, and this was also the case when he, certainly when he was preaching, but even when he was speaking, he, he, he he preached as a, as a minister of Jesus Christ, and, and he was raised in the Presbyterian tradition and solemnity of, of, of worship. And when he spoke, he spoke as a scholar, and he he, he didn't tend to show um, anything but that formal side of him in in his ministry, but. In reality, he loved to laugh, and in informal times, he, he he loved to laugh. He he loved old Laurel and Hardy movies. He he would watch uh, sitcoms in the evening. He'd actually read a book while he was watching a sitcom, and my mother was saying, you're not even watching this. Uh, and he said, I know exactly what's going on, but he would actually read a book and be marking and indexing a book while the sitcom was going on. And um, he he was a, he actually enjoyed life very much, but he was also a very hard worker so he was uh, an early riser he had a tremendous work ethic I've recently been writing some articles about his uh, some biographical articles on him and to do that, I went back through um, for f- over fifty years of journals that he had worked journals. And looking at what he did day by day and uh, his travels and the work that he did, even in and amongst his travels, it's just phenomenal. So he had a tremendous work ethic, but he also had a, a real joy in life. And he had a kind of a confidence. He spoke on very heavy topics at times, but he never felt the, wealth, the, 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 the weight of this um message on him like he he had to promote this or he and this had to be a successful um, message that was well received in order for him to be a success he said this was the Word of God and he believed he was saying that you know that that's my role and he was willing to leave the results up to God he was very optimistic about the future uh, but pessimistic is- about man. He was pessimistic about man, but very optimistic about the future. So he, he felt he felt every reason to be happy and joyous about life because, you know, it, it everything belonged to God and, and he was on the winning side. And so this whole idea of victory also entered into this zest that he had for his work.
0: The sheer volume of his writing lends one to believe that he never threw anything away, that he had a sense of destiny or that... Early on, he he must have felt that God had uh, had called him to something, and because just the I mean, because just the, the, the sheer numbers that you can go back and go into journals and 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 and, and read things that he wrote so far so early in his ministry, uh, he he must just he must have had a real profound sense of calling early on, and he must have just not thrown things out. He is he,
1: yes he was uh, a very re- remarkable and his. Uh, and, and I'm glad he recorded those things in in the journal. I don't know how he had time to to even stop and and do that from what he he did in life. But it, it's uh, it's a, a valuable resource and it, and it tells you what a, a work ethic he he had. Um, he would, uh, when I was a kid particularly, I, I could remember, he would go to the post office to, to mail things he'd, and he'd stand in line and he'd get his book out. While he was standing in line, he would read a book and mark in it. And the first time we went to Disneyland, we would my, my siblings and I would go on the rides and he would wait for us. And he took a book and he was reading the book while, while we were going on the rides at Disneyland. So he had this um, this phenomenal
0: work ethic. Um, tell us about. I mean, if this is if this is not off uh, off uh, limits, uh, I've recently had some discussions with, of course, Paul Michael Raymond there at New Geneva, and they've mentioned uh, the, their hopes to uh, have a place suitable to house your 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 dad's library. Is that something you can talk about? Well, yes. We,
1: I've, I've discussed it as you know um, the, the the possibility that I, I, I the the library is still intact and, and nothing has been done with it. And so I've you know uh, he's he's broached the subject of if they could have a facility for it. And I, I said I, I want, it needs to have a facility big enough that, that the library could actually be used in this will protect it from the elements for some time to come and that's that's not encumbered by death because I didn't I didn't it's not easy to move a library Um, and I said I would consider you know donating it to the right group if they had such a facility a lot of the schools might be willing to take his library but they'd want to pick and choose uh, what they like and uh, some of what he had in his library, they probably just wanted to dispense with outright. They, they would only pick the, the cream of the crop that they saw as valuable. My dad um, read good books and he read bad books, and it was necessary for him to read the bad books in order to understand um, modern thought. Uh, he read everything written by the Marquis de Sade, for instance, and he wrote a book based upon the Marquis de Sade. And uh, he saw his thinking as very much reflective of the direction of modern thought. And the Marquis de Sade, um, he's you know usually thought of as sexual deviancy, but he philosophically he had this hatred for God, and he knew. But he hated God. In fact, he actually talked about the ultimate crime would be to murder God. So he was self-consciously anti-God and anti-Christian. And he said, and my father said, he was repudiated for his crimes in his time, but modern thought has become more consistently anti-God like saw. It thought was really the precursor of the direction of modern thought. and we see that in our culture today. Um, there's a more of a self-conscious hatred for Christianity. Mm-hmm. The more bold that uh, unbelief becomes, the more self-consciously anti-god and anti-Christian it becomes.
0: Um, are there were, I, I've heard people um, call out particular titles of your father. Uh, I know uh, Bojadar has said numerous times that he believes that Foundations of Social Order is the most unique book ever written. Uh, did your father have any book that he thought was more important than any others, or that he of which he was he would you would call his? Would you say Institutes was his magnum opus?
1: Well, it's probably it's his most influential book, and it really the what he laid out there. Uh, um, he probably planned to write that book. Longer than any book, um, and I think he knew that that was kind of underlying everything else that he, uh, wrote. He, he said that when he was, uh, at the universe, in seminary, he spoke about the applicability of all of God's world. And he, he described it, he says, I got hammered. And he decided then that someday he wanted to deal with that topic more and that, but he want, he better wait until he was mature enough and he had researched enough before he would actually speak out on it. Chalcedon provided him the opportunity to study it. One of the first things he did when he started Chalcedon was he began a series of uh, lectures that became uh, the Institutes of Biblical Law Volume 1. And that really undercrits, like I said the theonomy is really the 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 mechanism of Christian reconstruction, and it's in effect what he was talking about with theonomy is how do we obey God in other words we, we can't have any advance in, in Christianity unless we're obeying God. God is not going to bless the Western Church or any church unless we learn how to obey God, and so that's ultimately what theonomy is it's how does how does the Christian obey God?
0: Mark, from your vantage point, you're able to, uh, obviously, you know where the literature is being sent when people are purchasing books and all that. Uh, and, and, and you have, obviously, the world, you know, the United States is not the world. Are there, do you have any knowledge or care to share any insights or pro, or perhaps prognoses of parts of the of the visible church around the world where um, there are, Aggressively embracing Christian Reconstruction and, and the works of your dad, any more so than perhaps somewhere else. You know, at this point, from
1: I don't I don't, I don't have a great grasp of, of what's going on, probably in, in the church as a whole. However, from my from the perspective I have, I think it's still primarily being forced by individuals who read and who've become convinced that, you know, this is not some strange new idea, that this is basically what God would have us to do. And sometimes it's a a minister, um, sometimes it's uh, it's an elder or someone who's teaching in a a school, but it's people who have some level of influence. And that's really what what we're talking about, how Christian Reconstruction works, it begins in our lives as individuals, we extended out into our family, to our vocations, and whatever sphere of influence uh, we have. Obviously, it would have been great if, if denominations of churches had embraced this early on. Uh, that hasn't happened. So the yeast is still fairly small. The, the seed has, you know, barely sprouted. And some people say, well, you know, you have to treat it like a business, and if you don't have a certain amount of growth in five or ten years, then you might as well consider it a failure. And we might, you might as well give up on the idea of Christian Reconstruction. Well, it, it, it wasn't, we don't think Christian Reconstruction was something unique to my father or, or to us, That it's basically an analogy in a way we explain where we go from here. You know, we're basically trying to answer the question, like I said, that Schaefer asked, how then shall we live? What is our our message to, first of all, the church? And we haven't even communicated Christian Reconstruction to the church. But if this is correct, it's an idea that won't go away. Even if it comes up, even if the name goes away, and the name is really irrelevant, to the message, um, it, it, we believe it's an idea that eventually will have to be embraced by the church, and the Holy Spirit will do it because it's correct.
0: Mark, what do you make of the what do you make of the response that that has come from some corners when people say, "Well, it's not theonomy that I have a problem with; it's theonomists, or it's not Christian reconstruction that I that I have a problem with; it's Christian reconstructionists." as a as a, a man who was weaned uh, on this response on this ideology uh, how would you respond uh, you you've seen you've seen the uh, you know the uh, obviously the the much i mean the, the, there's whispers of of of, of uh, of disunity that occurred early on within the family with, with Gary or Gary North or, or things like that. I mean, and, and, and how do you suppose, uh, do you suppose that this, that this uh, reputation uh, is, is, is deserved? And if not, uh, or if it is, how do we, uh, how do we get past it? I, I think the differences that,
1: Um, reconstructionists have had with each other in the past are really irrelevant to the larger message and I'm always suspicious of people who who come up with a cliché about why they don't like something or or they're in favor of something and and I think that kind of comes into the category of a cliché I've also heard people tell me why we're dangerous um, you know for reasons, for things that we don't really hold to, and so I, I think the ultimate reason that people are afraid of us is they truly believe that, that this um, our, our teaching on the law is somehow anti-grace uh, and, mm-hmm. and anti-Christ, and that's a hard that's a hard
0: um, nut to crack right there. And so it's like we have to go back and find allies within Calvin and Edwards and, and the people and the Spurgeon.
1: I don't think going back in history is going to help the, the modern church. To tell you the truth, I don't think they're they know that much of of, of their own history. So I'm not sure going back to and, and documenting um, things because, as my dad pointed out. Calvin and Luther could both say contradictory things about the law. And it depends on what their emphasis really was and what the context was, because when it came to um, justification, obviously they were very, very anti-law. But when they were talking about obedience, you know, they could sound like, well, certainly we obey the law, which is exactly what he's saying. And I often hear people. A few years ago, we uh, printed just the introduction to Biblical all One, and called uh, in a book called Faith and Obedience, because that that introduction, which was about 16 pages or so in the original, was so important. And so many of the much of the opposition I hear about people why they don't believe in Theonomy is answered right there in those that introduction. And they'll say that Brashtini believed in you know, justification by works. And he lays right out the introduction that that's not the case at all. He's talking about sanctification, uh, how we obey God, and how we grow in grace. He's not talking about justification. And so a lot of the people who are opposed haven't even read it. They're, they're afraid to even so much as as read it. So it's, it's very difficult. However, I, I would say the extreme forms of antinomianism have, you know, have cracked. It's just like in my lifetime, dispensationalism, the extreme pre-trib um, dispensationalism ha- is now far less influential mm-hmm. than it was in the 60s and 70s. It was unquestionable. And now, unfortunately, what's happened in eschatology is if that hasn't been replaced with much. But many churches just have stopped talking about eschatology like they did in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Well, when they're ready to replace their eschatology with something else, maybe we'll
0: see a, 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 a major shift. Mark, Okay. I, wanted to just, I wanted to ask you another question on the, on the horns of that we were talking about that. Uh, your father wasn't he really one of the pioneers even before uh, uh, Whitcomb and Morris? Wasn't he, your father really a uh, really standing tall for uh, young Earth creation and and the, and, the, and the, the, that that Genesis was history? What, what, your dad was was really well, before I T R or any of these ministries. Your dad was was solid on that, correct.
1: I I I believe so. I'm not sure I could uh quote anything, but in, I don't know if you've heard the story, but um when he was a pastor still in uh, Santa Cruz, California, he was doing uh he, would, he was a manuscript reader for Presbyterian and, and Reformed. And he would be sent a lot of these manuscripts and say, "You know, what do you think of this?" And it meant that he was kind of getting to see some of the cutting edge of stuff being written um, before it went. And he would sometimes say, no, this isn't worth publishing. This is our, He's off base here. And Morris and Whitcomb's uh, manuscript was submitted to Presbyterian Reformed. I believe Moody had already refused it and, and hmm. others had refused it as well. Or they said we you're gonna to have to edit it down quite a bit if we're gonna publish it. We'll publish it as a much smaller book. Well my father read it and told PNR, this is an important book and you should not require them to condense it. And so he was really responsible. He was the,
0: the, the one who said this definitely is worthy of publishing. Okay, okay. Okay, that's 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 where I was getting the story wrong slightly but i knew that your that your father had been instrumental at some point in uh in giving them a leg up so to speak or helping them out um, uh, was there any were there any areas mark that you could think of that i mean I, it, would your dad be shocked if if people were taking him as the final word <laughs> or or were there any areas that you ever knew your dad did not be uh Dogmatic, are convinced that he was. They had the, he had the correct interpretation of anything. Any, any areas of ambiguity at all in your, in your dad? Well,
1: I, I don't. I haven't thought to that issue particularly, but um, he didn't. When it came, let's well, let's talk about Christian reconstruction. When it came to Christian reconstruction, he had the big picture. And he didn't want Christian Reconstruction to be something that went through Chalcedon. Chalcedon was promoting the idea, the concept, but he definitely wanted people with expertise in different fields to pick up the ball and run with it. He said you cannot orchestrate something like this. You cannot organize it because it's basically as big as the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And so he defi- it's definitely something that he wanted others to pursue and to discuss. So he never
0: wanted to be the
1: final word
0: on okay. anything. Um, that leads us to our, our, maybe our final topic. We could we could talk to you and visit with you for a long, long time, and it would be fascinating. But uh, out of respect for you and out of time constraints, we, we want to cut it short. But we I do want to give you the opportunity to take as much time as you want here at the end of our podcast, to talk about the work of Calcedon, the resources, uh, and how people can access them, what, what you can, what you have to offer, uh, uh, the, the body of Christ. Well, we're basically a uh, um, we're a Christian
1: educational foundation. That's what Calcedon was started out in 1965 and today we exist largely as a publishing house and as a clearing house for reconstructionist ideas so a lot of our work is in um printed matter books we have a magazine Faith for All of Life which is available and um we also are publishing my my father's materials more of his material is available now than ever before and there's still a few things left that have never been published that we're um uh, getting out, and much of that is also available online. Um, as far before I get to what's online, um, we're publishing two what we call legacy projects this year. One has just gone to the printer and it's a collection of his position papers and uh, edited in in three volumes and with extensive footnotes and, and not extensive extensive indexing. So it's easy to find materials because he tended to put a lot of different miscellaneous bits and pieces of information in his writings. And uh, that's going to be available soon, and then we're going to do all of his Calcedon report articles uh, uh, that were ever printed. That will also be a three-volume work that will come out
0: later this year. And so well, of I've been enjoying his Roots of Reconstruction, which um, Shelby Shelby Lucas has been reading. Uh, um, is there a, is there a bound biography of your dad available? Um, no, there's not. Um,
1: the closest. No, there's not a, a biography of him. Uh, I've just done a few. Um, I've been doing a few sketches. The last one is about you know the seventh, and the last biograph- biographical sketch is going to appear in Faith for All of Life.
0: And even I've, I've noticed, I've the- noticed those. Yeah, I've noticed those, and I want that's why I thought it'd make good, good reading. I know the uh, uh, you know a recent uh, biography of Pierre Veray just came out, and, and and of course biographies are have a particular appeal all their own. And I just wondered if that was going to be a project for the, that we could anticipate at some point. Um. Nothing substantial. Um, one
1: reason I've hesitated doing it is, is limited resources. Sam Blumenfeld, uh, the educator, wanted to, to do one a few years ago, and I and I, I, I said no. We, we didn't really have the wherewithal to, to pay him to, to do all that research. And I also felt that anything we produced, as far as a biography, was going to be called into question as um, obviously a puff as a puff piece. It's usually right. um, uh, when you do a biography of your founder or, or someone close to you or, you know, um, it, it's, it's obviously not taken with the weight of uh, an independent researcher, uh, which may or may not be a good biography, but it, at least it's considered to be hopefully more objective whether it is or not.
0: You want to go ahead um, and tell us about the Internet resources then that you have? Oh, for? the
1: Internet, yes. We have a very extensive website called uh, Calcedon.edu. Uh, calcedon, C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N. Calcedon.edu, and we're about to launch an entirely new website. Our old website's about eight years old, and it's uh, showing its age. It was never up to what we had hoped it would be, and our new website is going to be a tremendous research tool, and it's going to be searchable then right it will be much more searchable and much better organized and actually you can you can see it now the preliminary version is available for viewing if you go to calcedon.edu there's a place at the top of the home page where it says click here to view our new website and you can view the website it's not fully functional but you can get a great idea of what it's going to be like we're going to start out with that 20 years of Uh, Our magazine on there. Most of my father's books are going to be available online, and uh, it's going to be much more searchable. So this is just—it's—it's literally a library in in, in website, and it's—I think it's going to be a huge, huge plus for the Reconstructionist movement. Uh, Things are—you're going to be able to find things on this website. Because that's obviously when you have a huge amount of um, archival material, it's the, the search function that, that makes all the difference in the world.
0: Right. Uh Now, the Faith Ball of Life magazine, that is a, that is a, uh, is that a pay-for? That's a free subscription, correct?
1: Yes. Um, you can get a subscription on, if you go to calcine.edu, there's a link there to how to get the Calcine um, a magazine, Faith for All of Life. It used to be called the Calcedon Report, and now it's called Faith for All of Life. But it is available also online? E- yes, and um, it's available online. Eventually, the new issues are uh, do go online, and right now we have issues from 1997 on that, that are available for viewing, and some of them in, 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 in more than one platform. All
0: right. Well, Mark, I I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, I know a lot of people on Facebook were very excited to know that you were going to be on the War Room today, and we hope that this will be first of of multiple visits. Thank you so much, Mark. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us in the War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by My Soul Among Lions.